The scripture reading for this afternoon is taken from two passages. First, 2 Kings 5, the verses 1 to 19. And after that, Christ's commentary on this passage in Luke chapter 4, the verses 23 to 30. And we'll be reading this in connection with question and answer 81 of the Heidelberg Catechism in preparation for Lord's Supper, who are to come to the table of the Lord. So 2 Kings 5, the verses 1 to 19, you'll be able to find that on page 426 of your pew Bible. Now Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And the Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Syria said, Go now, and I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised, when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. So it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please. Let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, He will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Are not the Abana and the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father... If the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his aides, and came and stood before him. And he said, indeed, Now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. 
so name and said, Then if not, please, let your servant be given two mule loads of earth, for your servant will no longer offer either burnt offering or sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. Yet in this thing may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the temple of Rimmon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, when I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. Then he said to him, Go in peace. So he departed from him a short distance. The next reading is a commentary on this by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 4, the gospel of Luke chapter 4, verses 23 to 30. You'll be able to find that on page 1184 of your pew Bible. So Jesus is speaking in his hometown of Nazareth. And he said to them, you'll surely say this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel at the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. So far, the word of God. We'll also read together from question and answer 81 of the Heidelberg Catechism. And if you want to follow along, it's on page 546 of your book of praise. There we read, who are to come to the table of the Lord? Those who are truly displeased with themselves because of their sins, and yet trust that these are forgiven them, and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and amend their life. But hypocrites and those who do not repent eat and drink judgment on themselves. So far. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, when was the last time that you were angry? How angry did you get? The people of Nazareth grew murderously angry at Jesus' words. They rushed him in a mob. They dragged him up to the top of a hill and they were ready to throw him off. Now, in the last minute, God intervened. Christ's time had not yet come. And so the crowds parted and Jesus walked through them and he went on his way. Now, it might be shocking for us today to consider this that they grew so angry that they were willing to throw him off of the top of the hill if it wasn't for the miraculous intervention of God. But it wasn't something that was completely unusual in the ancient world. It wasn't the first time that a crowd had tried to cause the death of someone, and it certainly wouldn't be the last time. If you look forward in history, you can see how a mob rushed Stephen the martyr and how they picked up stones and they threw them at him until he was stoned to death. 
The Apostle Paul as well was stoned when he faced opposition from the Jews. He, on the other hand, survived. Or think about Christ himself. While still kind of being taken through official channels, as in he was brought before the governor, was still the victim at the end of the day of mob justice. He was still sentenced to death on the power of an out-of-control multitude shouting, crucify him, crucify him. But even so, recognizing that it wasn't something that was completely out of the ordinary, it was still pretty extreme. So what was it that Christ had said that worked the people up into such a frenzy? Well, Christ had challenged the crowds of his hometown to put aside the way that they viewed him. Here, they viewed him as nothing more than Joseph's son. But when they refused to recognize him for who he was, he spoke a warning to them. Their position as God's people by circumcision would not save them if they did not come to him. God would send the gospel far beyond if necessary. People would come in, but they who heard him now would be left behind. If they did not listen to him, they would be rejected by God. And this enraged them. Who was he to make such a claim? They knew him well, or at least they thought they did. They were a part of God's people. They were in. They were Jews by circumcision and by blood. Who did he think he was to challenge that? And yet they had missed something. They missed something that Christ was drawing their attention to. They were not privileged as God's people for who they were. And to reject Christ was to reject God. Nothing would save them if they did not lay aside their preconceptions, their ideas of who he was, if they did not lay aside their pride and come to Christ in humility. Nothing would save them if they didn't understand that they were only privileged by grace. So we'll look at this today under the following theme and points. Privileged by grace, and we'll see first of all a harsh rebuke, second a humble response, and third a cleansing power. Christ drove this picture home with, or drove this rebuke home with a picture with the examples of the widow of Zarephath and the healing of Naaman the leper. But what was it about these passages and about these events that made it so offensive? Well, part of what made this so offensive was the state of Israel at that time. This is a well-known passage that Jesus is describing for the Jews, and it was their own history after all. But this was one of those times that people read it and they say, really? How was Israel so thick-headed at the time? I would never do that. You know, just like we have when we read the Old Testament so often. It's a human tendency for that to rise up in our hearts when we're reading some of these Old Testament passages if we don't understand the workings of God's grace. It's true for us, and it's just as true for the Israelites in Jesus' day. The people of Israel 
had rejected God in that era, the era of Elijah and Elisha. They weren't listening to the prophets. You had Elijah coming down and walking through the nation and performing all of these great miracles, even calling down fire from heaven. And was there a great revival? No. Well, yes, there was a temporary change, but nothing permanent. In fact, it's hard to see if there was anyone really who listened and was changed for the long term as a result of Elijah's preaching. And it led to great depression on the part of Elijah. In 1 Kings 19 verse 4, that well-known passage where he says, Take me away. I'm the last one left. And it seems that in the days of Elisha, the successor of the prophet Elijah, that there was no difference. And so God sent his prophets outside of Israel, the widow of Zarephath in the days of Elijah and Naaman in the days of Elisha. They were sent to Gentiles, the widow of Zarephath in the region of Sidon. Sidon was a country that was to the north of Israel. These were Gentiles, not Jews. And Naaman was a Syrian, an enemy of the Jewish people. God sending his servants to these people was an indictment of Israel. What does that mean? Well, it was a judgment or it was a conviction of them. It was God saying, I see you rejecting my messengers. I see you rejecting this grace that is administered to you through the sacrifices and through the ceremonies of the law. And therefore, I'm going to reject you. I'm going to show my grace to those who are not my people. And here Christ is saying to the people of Nazareth, this is what God is saying to you. You see, the people had made a significant mistake. They thought, okay, because we know God, we're okay. We're not like those other people. We wouldn't reject God like they did. How dare you compare us to them, Jesus? More than that, they saw it as being enough. We are Abraham's children, they believed. And as Jews, they actually put a lot of weight on those statements, on that belief. You can see that coming out in the, the Jews who challenged Christ in John chapter 8 as well. That same attitude. We are Abraham's children. This carries a lot of weight. Being Abraham's children, part of the people of God, part of the Old Testament church, is enough. But Christ says that's not enough. Your pride is getting in the way. Your unwillingness to listen to God, even though you claim to be his children, is getting in the way. And so God is going elsewhere. That grace which you thought belonged with you, that you said you deserved, that grace is going to an undeserving people, people like the widow of Zarephath and Naaman. Now today we don't have time to look at both of these people. We could probably write a sermon series on both, but we're going to just take one quick look at an episode of the life of Naaman. And this brings us to our second point. You might find it interesting that the second point is titled The Humble Response, when if you actually look at Naaman as he first comes, well, his first response isn't exactly a humble one, is it? He was no different than the people of Israel in a lot of ways. He had wealth. Did you notice the value of what he had in verse 5, 
Ten of the finest outfits available. Armani had nothing on these. Ten talents of the purest silver. Six thousand shekels, 150 pounds of solid gold. Giving money to those in the service of God, he figured, to this prophet Elisha, should count for something. He had influence. He used his friend, the king of Syria, to bend the king of Israel to his will. Here's the letter that he wrote. Now be advised when this letter comes to you that I have sent Naaman, my servant, to you that you may heal him of his leprosy. That would scare the king of Israel enough to make him force the prophet's hand if necessary. He had pride. Look at how he took offense at what Elisha did. Verse 12, when Elisha told him to wash in the Jordan River, are not the Abana and the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? And he turned and he went away in rage. He'd expected the process to go differently. Verse 11, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me and he'll stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal me of the leprosy. And because it didn't unfold the way that he thought it would or should, he was ready to throw it all away. Now let me point out something. Israel was actually not too much different. And it can be the same with us today. There can be times when we're not too different. We have money. It can be tempting to say to God, I'm doing a lot for you. I'm doing a lot for the church, whether it's investing financial resources or investing time and effort. That should count for something, right? We have influence. I'm part of the family of God. I'm a church member. I'm spiritually a child of Abraham. That's what the Apostle Paul said, right? Who are you to call that into question? We have pride. It can be tempting to tell those who call us to account, who are you to tell me that what I'm doing is wrong? Who are you to tell me that the way I'm going about dealing with my life worries you? Naaman had money, influence, and pride, and he tried to use all of that to show his own worth and to bend the system to his will. He would dazzle anyone who said otherwise into submission with this incredible display of wealth and of power. If anyone in Israel was worthy well, he would show that he was more so. After all, who could give more than he could? Who could bring more influence to bear on this simple little prophet? No one. Now you know how the rest of the story goes. We just read it. He comes to the door in all of his splendor with his whole retinue trailing behind him and he's, he's ready to make a, a big impression. And as someone knocks on the door there to try bring Elisha out, Elisha, maybe he's sitting around with a whole lot of guests and he doesn't even bother to get up and go out there. Maybe he's even sitting by himself. He doesn't even bother to get up and go out there. Doesn't even bother to take a single look at all this wealth and splendor, everything that Naaman had to bring to bear on him. He doesn't look at the message of the king. 
nothing. He just sends him out there, sends a servant out there and says, go tell him to wash seven times in the Jordan River. To wash in the humble and rather muddy Jordan River. He's enraged. He is enraged. He can't believe it. Doesn't all of this count for something? You don't even want to look at it? Fine, I'm not going to deal with you at all. But then we see an incredible amount of mercy from God, beloved. God's mercy is just breathtaking here. The voice of a simple servant arrests him. It stops him in his tracks. God's call through a humble follower. Just listen. Humble yourself. God extends his mercy. Cast yourself upon it. God caused him to stop in his sinful tracks. To think twice and to listen. And here you can see the big difference between Naaman and the rest of Israel. God came to the rest of Israel time and time again and they hardened their hearts But by God's mercy, by God's grace, the small voice of a servant in that train that he had with him was used to strip away his pride. Naaman humbles himself. And as he strips away his his clothes, as he strips away his finery on the banks of the river, he strips away his pride and he enters into the river to wash. This is his mercy. And this brings us to the third point. Naaman washes in the water and is cleansed. Don't underestimate the power of this simple fact, beloved. Leprosy in itself in Israel was a picture of sin. And for a leper to be cleansed was remarkable. There's a huge amount of grace that's on display here. It's just incredible, the compassion that's shown. Because though Naaman's first response was sinful, and though his pride was at first no different than that of the people of God, God still had mercy. And that to us is a great sign of mercy as well. Because maybe today you see yourself in the same position as the people of God. And you see how your own pride has been getting in the way. Your unwillingness to listen to God, even though you claim to be his children, and this has led you into sin. And you may even be wondering at this point, should I be coming to the table of the Lord today? Now, if you plan to self-justify and to lean on what you contribute, well, this should count for something while choosing to continue in sin, then the answer is no. Everyone sins, yes. But when we are made aware of our sin, God calls us to repentance. And if your sin doesn't grieve you enough for you to repent and to turn away from it, our catechism points that out pretty clearly. 
but hypocrites and those who do not repent eat and drink judgment on themselves. If you examine yourself and you know yourself to be living in hypocrisy and you know that you have no intention of changing, do not come. To be clear, I don't mean that you might think, that someone else might think that you're acting like a hypocrite. That's between them and God. Do not let that bar you from the table. I'm speaking of if you examine yourself and you know this about yourself. Do not come. But instead, loved one, I beg of you, humble yourself and repent. Confess your sin before God. Confess your sin to each other and turn away from your sin. Cast yourself on the mercy of Christ. For those of you who do repent, you who set aside your pride and who set aside any other attempts to self-justify or to earn your way before God, those who, as our catechism puts it, are truly displeased with themselves because of their sins and yet trust that these are forgiven them and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and amend their life. Those two wards, as they come to the table who desire more and more to strengthen their faith and amend their life, for you, trust in the cleansing power of the blood of Christ. Far more powerful than the miracle of the Jordan River, Christ's blood is for you. The Lord's supper table is for you. Think of Naaman as he came and the huge change that came upon him who desired to strengthen his faith by taking just some of this land which God himself had claimed in two baskets of soil to, to take it with him as he left so that he could have something of that, that preciousness of this covenant God who had laid claim to the land of Israel for his people, who desired to turn away from his sin and to worship God only by the working of the Holy Spirit in his life, and who asked for forgiveness even for those times when he would be forced to bow because the king was leaning on his arm to strengthen his faith and amend the, his life. For you who desire to strengthen your faith and amend your life and trust in the suffering and death of Christ, the Lord's Supper table is for you. Christ will not leave you. In fact, we read in the book of Romans how Christ has left those who rejected him to come to the Gentiles and to claim them as his own. Christ has come to you. You see, you are not privileged because you are worthy. In fact, left to our own devices, you and I, we're not worthy. 
But we are made worthy because we have been granted the privilege of God's grace. And so we're not just allowed to approach, but we are called to come and to find strength in the forgiveness of Christ as imaged here through the sign and seal of the sacrament. Just as Naaman rose from the river that final time, water dripping from his body, skin fresh, clean, and gleaming in the hot Middle Eastern sun, cleansed, so you, too, rise up after taking part in the Lord's Supper, having humbled yourself of all your pride, having dipped in the river of Christ's blood, repentant of your sin, and you are washed by the grace of God, cleansed from sin and shame, truly forgiven, for the sake of Christ. Take, eat from it, all of you. Remember and believe that his body was broken for the complete forgiveness of all your sins. Amen.